Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. Why are you looking at me like that? Because you gave me a weird look. Yeah, this just eh. yeah. Well, you gave me a weird look. Well, anyway, tonight's guest was super. I was super excited about. Super awesome. Super super awesome. awesome. Super. Michael Cremo. God. Damn. Yeah. Guy ruled. Yeah, he's, he's been a, around yeah. for a long time. Yeah, and he was one of the. He was a guest. We, you know, I, we did that. I mentioned that we eleven years ago. Yeah, it was the last time we had him on, and I've been kind of looking up some of the people we talked yeah. to, and I wanted to get him back on. And this was one of those guys top of my list. Yeah, Michael's really cool. He's been doing the whole ancient aliens thing before it was a. Well, I don't want to say aliens, but the whole ancient civilization thing uh, before it was even popular <laughs> with his book, yeah, uh, Forbidden Archaeology, and but. Because of ancient aliens, all of this stuff, the idea that humanity's super old, uh, civilizations super old, buildings, all that kind of stuff, it's just become way more He's popular. He's a person that really challenges your mind. And it all kind of was coming back to me. Because we had, like I said, we haven't oh, talked to him in 11, talking, okay. 11 years. Uh, but, you know, just, um, you know, when you have a conversation with Michael, you know, he, he just, you can feel your mind kind of burning a little bit. Like, because you're having, you're, He's presenting ideas to you that you've never really thought about, uh, and that's the stuff I know we live for here. So it was really great talking to him. One thing we uh, we've been meaning to mention here: we're going to be this week, as a matter of fact, uh, we're going to be at the Michigan Paranormal Convention, which yeah, is the in tenth Su- annual tenth annual, yeah, uh, and we're, that's it's this up week. in Sault Saint Marie, Kiwaden Casino. Casino, casino. Uh, casino, 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 um, casino. It's a pretty. It's actually. I, I believe him when they say it's the largest paranormal convention in the Midwest now. Is it? Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, we, had, we were there last year, just kind of as spectators hanging yeah. around. It was a good time. This year, we decided to get a booth, a booth table. So we, I yeah. don't. I don't know if you'll see if you. If I'm not there, all you have to do is go into one of the casino rooms. And look, look for the Wonder God. Woman machine. I'm still scarred from that last and year. And my friend Marnie and I will be there. If maybe, if you happen to buy a book from me or something like that, and you're like, oh, I want, I want this girl to sign this. <laughs> like, and I'm not there. Meanwhile, I'll, I'll be, be working very hard at the table <laughs> that we have for the entire weekend. Yeah. Sludged over the mixing no, board, working too. the microphones, talking to people. I'm going to try and sling some books. Well, so. Amber gambles away what little money she, <laughs> no. st- she okay. has. For every five books I sell, I'm going to run off to the Wonder Woman machine. <laughs> oh, and just piss it away and then come back and go, I need to sell no, more books. I'll come back. And yeah, no, it's going to be a real problem so, weekend. So we're going to have like a joint table. You're, you know, Michi- yeah. Michigan's other side, yep. Ghostly Talk. Uh, we're going to have our table there along with other people. So if you're going and you listen to our show, come on by. Say yeah, hi. Say um, hi. Maybe we'll chat. If you want to yeah. chat, well, well, we'll do some recording. It'll be fun. We're going to have all the gear there. It'll be cool. Yeah, we don't have any plans. We're just going to get some content like we've done at other previous yeah, well, conferences. It, it was a lot of fun at Troy's conference, you know, at the, at the at Haunted America conference. Yeah. We just at Troy's conference. Uh, we had a riot and we came home with. Way more stuff than I thought. I mean, I was like, oh, my God, I have to go through and mix all this and make it all work. Uh, but I was happy to do it. It was great. So uh, I'm sure it'll work the same way this coming weekend. Uh, 10th Annual Michigan, Par- Michigan Paranormal Convention. We look forward to seeing you all there. Uh, yeah. And Michael Cremo. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. I mean. Would you like me to read his bio? Uh, his bio? His bio. His bio. His bio. His bio. His bio. I didn't say bio. I, bio. I didn't say bio. I said bio. All right. Anyway, yeah. Michael A. Cremo is an American freelance researcher who identifies himself as a Vedic creationist and an alternative archaeologist and argues that humans have lived on Earth for millions of years. 
In case of artifacts allegedly found in the Eocene auriferous gravels of Table Mountain, California, and discussed in his book Forbidden Archaeology, Cremo argues for the existence of modern man on Earth for as long as 30 to 40 million years ago. I almost couldn't say some of those words. (laughs) Heavy stuff. (laughs) Heavy, heavy stuff. Enjoy our conversation with Michael Cremo. Are you there? Yes, I am. Good to be back with you. Yes, thank you so much. Like I said, I know we're all pretty busy. It seems like the older we get, the busier we get. And it really does mean a lot uh, that you can take some time to chat with us again. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, now, I know Amber has been... I'm, I'm going to put her on the spot and make fun of her because I know you were really excited when I said, hey, we're going to have Michael Cremo. I am really excited. You were were jumping up and down. I have his books and I've seen him on TV and I've listened to him on Coast to Coast (laughs) and all kinds of places. So I'm giving, this is, I mean, you, we talked about this. We had this conversation. Yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff to to talk to Michael. I mean, we, we... we have like an hour, and of course, we could probably spend six hours talking yes, about everything that is in his head. Yeah. But, Michael, I have to ask you right off the bat, it's got to feel good since the publication of your book, Forbidden Archaeology, back in 1993, and to have a lot of academia or you know people in that world to kind of like just completely laugh at these hype ideas and theories that civilization is a lot older than we ever thought it was. And in recent years, to have a lot of this stuff kind of um, – the theories that you people like you and Graham Hancock and all these people have put forward, there's so much stuff supporting it now. And it's got to feel kind of good that this is happening. Well, a- absolutely. I, I think um... – mainstream science is taking tiny steps in the right direction. You know, for example, in terms of uh, human antiquity, in 1993, when Forbidden Archaeology was published, uh, most scientists thought humans like us first came into existence about 100,000 years ago. And then Uh, Gradually, over the decades, uh, they advanced it to 200,000 years, and now on the basis of some discoveries in Morocco of some anatomically human skulls, uh, they're now placing the origin of anatomically modern humans at about 300,000 years. Of course, I think humans like us have been around for millions of years, but at least the trend is going in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. Another another, uh, feature of Forbidden Archaeology when it was published in 1993 was the idea that humans like us coexisted 
with various uh, types of ape-man-like creatures in the distant past. And that view has now become accepted by mainstream scientists. Uh, they're saying that humans like us coexisted with Neanderthals and Denisovans and uh, what they call the Hobbit, Homo floresiensis in uh, Indonesia, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, I think uh, the period of coexistence of humans like us with more uh, primitive ape-like creatures has gone on for a long, long, long time, many millions of years. But again, it's an example where the trend in science is going in the direction of forbidden archaeology. So you're right about that, Amber. It, 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 it does make me feel good in a sense. Yeah, it should. But in, in another sense, I think they've got a long, long way to go. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things I've, I've heard recently, too, in regards to the Neanderthal is that people that are taking these DNA tests now, where they learn what part Scottish, Irish, all that they are, that there's even... 23andMe crap, they call well, it. Well, there's, there's a few different companies that make them, yeah. but that you will actually get a little portion that could come back saying Neanderthal now. And yeah. I, that's amazing to me because I maybe you can enlighten me on this because I'm not quite sure if they used to think that the Neanderthals or like the Denisovans just died off. But I know now like they're starting to believe they didn't necessarily die off, that we interbred. Yeah, that's that's really kind of interesting. Of course, uh, a lot of my ideas about these things are inspired by my studies in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, which talk about a very ancient human presence on Earth. But another thing uh, they talk about is the idea that there are many human-like species of uh, 400,000 is actually the number that's wow. put wow. on it. 400,000 human-like species scattered throughout uh, the universe. So I think we were beginning to uncover uh, a lot of these human-like species. And uh, they seem to be varieties of our species in the sense that there could be interbreeding. So, yeah, that's a that's a fascinating topic. It really is. Well, when we t when we say our species too, I mean, just to be very clear, I mean, we're talking about a straight bipedal well, carbon homo, homo sapien sapien. Okay. Right. But but on a science but on a more scientific side though, carbon breathing, I mean, well carbon we live on carbon basically or oxygen I don't know. whatever. <laughs> um, you know what I'm talking about. Come on. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess the question is, or the I, you know, what I want to throw out there, Michael, is uh, when we say you know similar species, I wonder if they you know they live on the same elements. Like you know, we're a car like I said, we're a carbon-based species. I wonder if they're if that's a do that's, a, that's a large do, number. Well, too, do, are you you're, at, you're asking do all the ingredients have to be the same? Yeah, I guess yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way to put it. Is, is, is that something that has been talked about, Michael? Well, it, it's something that that I talk about because yeah, th this is going to take us a little bit beyond the stones and the bones that archaeologists normally deal with. But uh, I would say it all depends on 
how we answer the question, what is a human being? Now, there are many scientists who say we're purely material beings, we're just machines made out of molecules in competition with each other for survival, and as far as our mind and consciousness is concerned, well, that's just a temporary byproduct of bioelectrical activity in the brain. And at the time of death, when the chemicals in the brain become disorganized, then there's no more consciousness, no more mind, nothing like that, just molecules. I don't accept that. I think that consciousness has its own independent existence apart from matter. Matter doesn't produce consciousness, but consciousness can come in contact with matter and become covered by it. So I would say as conscious beings, as conscious individual persons, uh, we have an existence, an origin that goes beyond the world of matter. Uh, our human body or any other type of body, any type of animal body or ape-man body or plant body or insect body or fish body is a vehicle for a conscious self, which is non-material. So I would say, yeah, our bodies now are carbon-based. But you could, I could imagine on some other level of reality or some other planet and some other galaxy, there may be conscious selves who have bodily vehicles that are not, as you say, carbon, carbon based. Yeah. You know, they're, they're based on some other type of chemistry or some more subtle kinds of matter that our present science is equipped to deal with. Yeah. Our present science here on this planet, I guess that's what you mean, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the reason I, you know, I thought about that. Um, well, there, there's a couple things I wanted to mention here. I mean, the idea of consciousness, and I'm with you on that. I think because, uh, you know, and I've, I've I've entertained the idea that, and I, and I've tried to, you know, it. I think. As we all know, the great cosmic joke is just that. We don't know what happens after you die until you die, but we spend our entire lives happening what happens, you know, wondering what happens to you after you die, right? You don't know until you die. So, um, and we haven't been able to prove it yet. I mean, there's people in our, you know, we're in that field that that's what we do. We try to figure, find out what happens after your physical processes cease to function anymore. But um, I, I do sit on the same side with you on that. Um, uh, the average person, I mean, any thinking person, we think about things. I know every day I think about things about my place in the universe and what my purpose is and, you know, how everything interacts with one another and how this whole machine kind of works together in a certain way and how we as one person inside of the, you know, inside of this universe can have an effect on this entire universe by one decision we make and things like that. So, I mean, and that's just literally like a little scraping the top of it really of just having these thoughts. And based on that right there, just having simple thoughts like that, I think not too deep, I guess um, it makes me say, no, there's more to us than just, yeah, the blood and the bone basically. Right. There's got to be more to us than that. We're not just, as you say, which I do think that's an interesting way to look at it, that these 
that consciousness is just a byproduct of all these chemical functions happening, right? Um, I don't believe that either. I think there's something way more to that. Uh, does that make sense? <laughs> well, a- absolutely it makes sense. I think anybody who ponders these things for more than a second will have similar kinds of uh, realizations. Um, but, uh, but people, they also have experiences that <clears throat> tend to suggest these things and confirm these things and, uh, that are very consistent with these ideas. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, people who have near death experiences or out of, out of, uh, body types of experiences, you know, like heart attack patients. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the heart stops beating, blood stops flowing to the brain, medical instruments show that the brain waves stop uh, at a moment like that. A person should be completely unconscious, but, uh, there are people in that situation who report separating from their bodies, being able to look down and see and hear uh, what the doctors and nurses are doing to try to revive them. And yeah. then uh, at a certain point, they're revived and they're able to report in detail exactly what they observed. And, you know, people, you know, there, there was Dr. Michael Sabum, for example, who, who investigated this phenomenon, and, and he would compare the reports of what these people say they saw with the medical records kept by the doctors and nurses who treated them, and he could see that they matched up, and he, he took it as, and I, I would also take it as proof that they were having a real experience apart from the body, apart from the brain, it was a conscious self that temporarily separated from the body, yeah. from the brain, and then re-entered it. So there's different categories of scientific evidence that are consistent with this feeling that you report that you have, and which I feel, and which many other people feel also. Well, what about things, though, too... I was thinking about this as you were explaining that more. I mean, maybe something more simple. I mean, I know one thing I have in life, for example, like what I, I've always been, I've been told by many people, it's my, it's my greatest blessing, but it's also my greatest curse is my ability to keep control of things, to, to keep my arms around things at all times. Um, and try to control situations, you know, which, you know, you know, you have your act together. That's fine. Uh, I find the older I get, though, I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of just go with the flow on things and not try to control stuff so more so much. And I'm noticing that as a result of that, um, just kind of letting things kind of happen. Things just kind of seem to I shouldn't I won't say work out all the time, but they seem to just kind of fall into place sometimes, right? And I don't know if that's me, you know, con, you know, subconsciously putting something out in the universe saying, Hey, I need this to happen as opposed to me physically trying to put my arms around it and rat, you know, wrestle it down. Um, but it seems like I'm seeing more stuff like that happen in front of me just by kind of just calming down and being at more peace, I guess. Uh, does that, does that make sense too? Uh, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, every day I practice, some. Um 
meditation, I mean, just to get into that, into that state. But you know, you're also reminding me of a, of a, an experience that kind of, that happened to me when I was uh, younger, when I was in my twenties, I was in uh, the United States Navy and I was stationed in Iceland. I was at a weather station in Iceland and, you know, some, uh, friends of mine, uh, and I, we went out into the mountains of Iceland in the winter time camping. And we decided we wanted to have a race to the top of a nearby mountain, not a Mount Everest size mountain, but you know, a few thousand feet high. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we kind of started racing up the side and I was kind of like winning. I got almost to the top and then I kind of slipped. I fell onto my back. You know, my head was pointing downhill and I was going faster and faster on the ice and snow. And, you know, I was kind of thinking, I was thinking of all the sharp rocks that I climbed over the little cliffs and ledges. And I thought, you know, my head's going to get smashed open on one of these rocks. I'm going to go over one of those cliffs. And at a certain point, I just kind of let go of it. You know, I realized there's nothing I can do. And, uh, you know, I had one of these out of body experiences where I could, I was separated from my body and I could see it going down the side of uh, the mountain. And, then I kind of blacked out and I woke up <clears throat> at the base of uh, the hill in a snowdrift. <clears throat> and my friends were telling me the way that you came down there, it's the only way that you possibly could have come down and survived. You know, yeah. I mean, so it's kind of uh, that experience of letting go and letting things happen that you were talking about sort of combined with a, a near death experience. Yeah. It makes me think, I'm not going to mention any names in this situation, but this just is something that just happened literally over the weekend um, to me and, and uh, a close relative of mine. Um, we were doing some work on the house here and Something got pulled off the roof of the house, a drill, <laughs> you know, and as I'm sure, you know, Mr. Cremo drills tend to be pretty heavy and they yeah. have, they have drill bits on them, which are relatively sharp and serrated. Um, right. long, long story short, I instructed the person not to pull this off the roof, that that's dangerous and they could be injured if they do that. And they, he, they didn't heed my warnings and, I walked away for a second, and then I heard a crashing sound and turned around to see this person holding their face, right? Of which they had a broken nose, by the way, <laughs> um, because the drill hit him in the face, right? Now, what made me think about this, though, like in relation to your situation, Mr. Cremo, is you let go. In your situation, it's a bit different. You let go and said, okay, I have to just let's see, let this thing play out and see what happens. I look back at this thing and maybe the hindsight isn't the way I should look at it, but I'm like, okay, another, if he would have yanked that a, a certain way or a different way, right? This person, um, that drill book could have come straight at, at his head. 
and possibly stabbed him in the head and probably could have killed him, right? Um, and I think of, I've been thinking about that for the last couple of days, and maybe I shouldn't. It probably isn't the healthiest thing because it kind of freaks me out, right? But I'm like, okay, this slight little, you know, was there something in the universe there, right, that said, this isn't your time. I said this to my friend the other day about this. I'm like, it clearly wasn't his time because it, it just would have been another inch or two and that thing would have went straight at his head with the drill, you know, coming with a very fast amount of force, gravity, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things like, I mean, I know you can't walk through life just kind of going, I'm going to throw everything to the universe and let them let the universe decide. I mean, we have to have some kind of control, Right. But I thought about that situation yeah. a lot, and I'm and again, maybe I shouldn't think so much about it, right? But I am astounded by that, thinking about the intricacies of that moment in time with that event that happened, and how it could have been severely different, drastically different, if there was just you know a different pull or angle of the cord, or you know I don't know the wind blew a certain way. I mean, there's all there's a million different ways this could have played out, I guess, right? Um, and it just seems like that's the weirdness of when you say, when you have things just working in the universe like that, how there's all these different outcomes, I guess. Uh, I, I know it, it just has me, what you said just had me thinking about that too. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm all over the place here. Amber's giving me the craziest look right now. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it's those things you think about though. And it's those things that I think about, you know, with life and things like that is those is scenarios and outcomes like that. I may be a bit obsessed with them. Like, well, okay. So this brings about, about a good question here is about the integration of science and spirituality. Okay. So kind all of right, like what right. you're talking about, like, you know, how much of it science, which is just two inches back, two inches the forward, wind, it's logic, anything. the wind, all these natural Gravity, things, all these things versus some kind of force out there looking down at uh, your family member and going, not today. Yeah, well, <laughs> you that's, know? What, that's what I'm saying. So, like, so Michael, you know. is that is there anything in the Vedic cosmology that kind of explains this kind of stuff in our life, these chance happenings of someone not dying or maybe dying? Um, because that is one of our kind of topics on our list here is Vedic cosmology versus modern science. Yeah. Uh, it you know, brings up a, a, a very interesting question. If were conscious selves that are by nature eternal. There's no beginning, there's no end. Uh, Then if you're on that level of reality, then there isn't any fear. There's, in effect, you're beyond time. You're beyond this uh, state where you have to worry about the possible destruction of your body or that of a friend or relative or family family member. So according to the Vedic cosmology, that's our original state as beings of pure consciousness. It's a level of reality that is beyond time, uh, it's beyond birth, it's beyond death, there's no beginning, there's no end, it's just uh, the eternal present. But what happens is that when we become selfish or egotistical and we, uh, we 
don't want to be in that harmonious original state with all other conscious beings, then we have to, we need a, another reality in which we can function, and that's the world of matter. And in the world of matter, we need vehicles made of matter in which to function. So that's what bodies are, human bodies, plant bodies, animal bodies. They are vehicles for conscious selves to operate in the world of matter. And we, we, we begin to identify with the temporary body that we're inhabiting. You know, the conscious self, although it's different from uh, the vehicle that it's in, just like you're different, like you drive a car, you're a person, you're, you're not the car, but if you're in the car and you're driving it, you tend to identify uh, the car as yourself and you become worried. Is it going to crash? Is, somebody gonna, is, is it going to go off the road? Is you know, something going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so you have to be, but, uh, so it's the same with our identification with, uh, whatever material vehicle that we happen to be in at the present moment. Yeah. It, it can, uh, uh, get into an accident. Something can happen to it, but that is something different than the actual, conscious self, who we really are on that higher level of reality that's beyond all that. So the, the real question for us is how can we get back to that original condition where we're beyond time and all the uh, destructive forces that are there on the material level of reality. I don't know if that's making any sense. It's like waking up from a dream in a sense. Yeah. That in a, and when we go to sleep at night, we may dream a tiger's coming after me. We become afraid. We, but really nothing's happening to us. We're, we're lying there in our bed and we have nothing to do with that dream situation. But as long as you're in it, then you get confused, you get frightened, you get so, but when you wake up, then you understand actually I wasn't threatened at all. Yeah, but you wake up and you, for I know for a second when it comes so to dreams. So that's the question is how to wake yeah. up. Yeah, because I know when I know I've, we, and all, a whole thing, like a whole smorgasbord of emotions I felt waking up from dreams, anger. Fear, happiness sometimes had a really cool dream or, you know, sure. Um, but yeah, it's that that's a very small moment in time uh, that you feel that. And then you come out of that and that's yeah, it always happens that way. Like, oh, well, that was just a dream. Everything's fine. I'm perfectly OK. Uh, the, the question I have, because you're talking about the body and you mentioned, you know, human bodies, plant bodies, uh, animal bodies. I guess every, I, I guess the thing I was thinking about is down to every life form we have, I guess, on this planet, 
are they all vehicles for some higher level of consciousness? Uh, that's the question yeah. that I was asking. Like, like the snail that comes by you, um, the grasshopper that jumps by you, and you're sitting on your lawn chair in your backyard. I mean, these are all vehicles for some higher level of consciousness, correct? Yeah. Well, it's like, <clears throat> say, I'm a person, and you know, I can get on a scooter, you know, like you see going up and down the streets in some cities these days. Yeah. Or I can get on a motorcycle uh, and I can go faster than I can on one of the electric scooters. Or I can get in a Ferrari and go even faster. Or I can get in a boat and go on the water. Or I can get in a submarine and go under the water. I can get in an airplane and fly in the sky. Or I can get in a space capsule and be shot to outer space yeah travel in space i'm the same person but according to the vehicle that i'm operating i can function in different ways so i would say it's the same kind of conscious self in the human body in the bird body in the fish body in the snail body whatever but they're kind of the what it's able to do is kind of limited by the kind of vehicle uh, that it has. And what makes the human vehicle so special, according to the Bhagavad Gita and other Vedic texts, is that in the human vehicle, we have the ability to understand who we really are as conscious selves apart from all these different bodily vehicles. And we have a, a, an opportunity to do that, to raise our level of awareness and consciousness. That's the special benefit of the human vehicle. We can use it for that purpose. And, uh Go ahead, Amber. Do you think consciousness needs matter to survive, or do you think it could survive on its own without being in some type of physical form? Uh, I think it can survive itself with, without being in, 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 a, in a physical form. And you know, we may see, you know, even our own lives, you know, when I was two years old, I had a baby's body, and then when I was 15, I had a teenager's body, and you know, when I was 35, I had an adult male body, and now I'm a little bit older. And, you know, and I can see throughout all those material changes, yeah, you know, because the, the molecules in the body are recycled year after year after year, so, so that, practically speaking, none of the molecules that were there in my original infant body are still with me. You know, I'm, and I'm still the same person. I have an identity that's apart from all those changes of material circumstances and ingredients that my body, the material body has passed through. I'm still the same conscious and I think I will always be the same conscious self 
even when I'm not in a body or I never was in a material body. I, you know, I think the conscious self has its own original uh, kind of body, a non-material body and set of senses and abilities. But what, based on that though, and may, maybe if I'm missing the point here, you can slap me at least, Amber. Okay. Um, to me, based on that, then if if it's just the, if it's just the same, we carry the same consciousness from birth to death, you know, physical birth to physical death. Why wouldn't we come out uh, come out of the womb? I guess being able to communicate with each other on a physical level. It takes time for a person to learn how to communicate with other persons, or try to even understand. Uh, at least the physical, the physical plane around them. Um, you know, obviously, babies don't touch that. It's hot. It's a stove. It's hot. You stay away from that. Sometimes they they learn from that. Sometimes they don't. They learn the hard way. So they, you know, a person through many years, decades of growing up, they learn and they learn how to communicate and learn how to work in societies and understand the world around them that it seems to me that if they were just uh, a static consciousness that that, that, that's forever like you say they would more or less just kind of come out (laughs) prepackaged i don't know any other way to really say it uh that's what that's kind of the idea i have what amber i was just going i was just wondering if this kind of wraps up in the idea of reincarnation. Yeah, so yes, I think it is tied up with the, the, the question of reincarnation. Because in, in yeah, many cases, there are, there are cases of young children who, who display amazing abilities, for example, musical abilities, you know, the, the ability to play uh, musical instruments. And you know, when they've had no training you know, because they're, they're just children. Right. It, you know, it seems like it's something from some past life. Yeah. You know, that, that, that they have, you know, they're carrying on. And even in my own case, you know, basically I'm a writer. That's how I've spent my life. That's been my main principal activity. And I remember once, uh, you know, my mother told me, uh, you know, when I was small, when I was two or three years old, she would give me alphabet soup. She said I wouldn't eat it. I would spell out words <laughs> in the bowl. Yeah. You know, like, <clears throat> so I, yeah, I think uh, many people have that kind of experience. You know, they, they, there's just something inside them that's just waiting to, express itself some talent or ability or something so that points to i believe reincarnation as one of the possible explanations for that one of the other things this is completely changing the subject that i've wanted to talk to you about is this and i okay i've Looking at the notes, I have never heard this word, so I had to look this up. But so I get excited when I learn new words. But the Silurian <laughs> hypothesis 
if I'm saying that right. So I had to look this up, and I love stuff like this. It's the idea that we have had an industrial civilization come and go quite possibly like 2.5 million years ago, and there's no evidence of it whatsoever. And the idea that this is something that's possibly happened is just beyond cool to me. But in your research, I mean, can you tell us more about this? Well, okay. Yeah, this gets us back yeah. you know, to the stones <laughs> and bones yep. and the archaeology, <laughs> which is maybe yeah, after we've taken these uh, philosophical flights here, <laughs> get get back to uh, the stones and the bones. Uh, you know, the Silurian is a period in the geological history of the Earth. You know, scientists have different names uh, for the periods of time and the Earth's history. And the Silurian is the period that goes from about 413 million to 443 million years ago. And how that came up was once uh, a few years ago, there were a couple of scientists who worked for NASA Uh, One of them was uh, Gavin Smith, and the other one was uh, Adam Frank, who was an astrophysicist. And uh, they were uh, looking for evidence of other civilizations uh, in other galaxies, because they were thinking uh, they might be able to detect, you know, using... Uh, scientific instruments, you know, analyzing the light that comes from other galaxies, whether there have been other civilizations that have uh, produced, you know, the kinds of uh, chemicals that we're producing today that are changing our climate and, you know, perhaps bringing us to uh, some kind of environmental crisis on Earth that would wipe out life. Of course, they'd have to have a technologically advanced civilization to do that. So they were wondering, you know, what, what ways are they, are, could we possibly have scientifically to uh, examine the light that comes from these planets and distant galaxies to analyze what their atmosphere is like and what changes they may have undergone you know, like climate change and things like that. And then they started wondering, well, what about not what's happening on some distant galaxy, but what if there were some civilizations that existed millions and millions of years ago on our planet? Would we be able to detect any signs of their existence today? And they, and they had been watching this television series called Doctor Who <laughs> from, from uh, the United Kingdom. It's yeah. from Great Britain. Yeah. And they were watching some episodes from the Doctor Who television series. And in one of them, uh, there were some scientists operating a nuclear reactor, and uh, they were they detected some activity under the earth and they kind of went down and looked and they 
discovered that they had awakened a group of reptile reptilians, reptilian humanoids that had existed during the Silurian period. Yeah, so that's where this Silurian hypothesis okay. term comes from. It comes from NASA scientists who were wondering what if there was some advanced technological civilization that had existed on Earth uh, 400 million years ago during the Silurian period? What would we be able to see uh, today as remnants of what happened? And they determined that you, you couldn't see very much because you know, the fossil evidence would have been destroyed. Any artifacts that would have existed would have eroded away, oxidized. Uh, uh, what, what they determined was that you might be able to detect some chemical traces uh, of uh, elements that had been modified by humans or radioactive elements you know, from their nuclear reactors or something like that. Uh, and I, I was kind of interested in what they were doing because it was interesting to, be, to see scientists speculating about something that in forbidden archaeology I had demonstrated was a fact. Exactly, Namely, yeah. that there were humans present on, on Earth millions, even hundreds of millions of years ago, as far back in time as the Silurian period. And, you know, there's evidence for this. It's not very well known uh, because of a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the world of science. But in 1880, there was a report in Scientific American. Uh, there was an article called Ancient Man in Missouri. And it was about a, a man in uh, Missouri who uh, was doing some mining. You know, his name was R.W. Booth. And he had a mine at a place called uh, Dry Branch in Franklin County in Missouri, and in in the mine, 18 feet below the surface, he found some human human bones, a human skull, rib bones, part of the backbone, uh, a femur or thigh bone, and he also found some stone tools and charcoal and some kind of fabric that the bones were lying on, and these things were found in a formation that uh, geologists assign to the lower Silurian period. So uh, my point in bringing up this Silurian hypothesis uh, that these NASA scientists were speculating about is, yeah, there, there were humans who existed on our planet millions, 400 million years ago, back during the Silurian period. So that's how that came up. 
So do, do the Rockefellers have something to do with this, um, with the knowledge filtration system, with what you were just talking about with uh, with Booth in Missouri? Um, is there anything with the Rockefellers that, because that was in our notes, so now I'm curious. Well, yeah, where that, where that comes up is, you know, there's a, you know, scientists now believe that humans like us first came into existence uh, two or 300,000 years ago. And before that, they say there were no humans like us on Earth. There were only more primitive ape-like human ancestors. So they would say human beings like us evolved from ultimately some primitive apes and monkeys who lived millions of years ago, and gradually they evolved into uh, human beings like us. And uh, one of the pieces of evidence they give for that is uh, what they call beige ring man. And these were some fossils of ape men that were discovered in China in the 1920s by uh, Davidson Black, who was a a physician working at the Beijing Medical Union College in uh, Beijing, China. And that hospital, that school, was started by the Rockefeller Foundation. So the Rockefeller Foundation was... Uh, funding the research of Davidson Black, uh, who excavated the, these fossils of uh, the ape man, Beijing man, yeah. as they were as as it was called, and it was kind of interesting uh, that the the reason they were funding this kind of research, this evolution research, it's really kind of interesting uh, because John Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller Sr., who who founded the Rockefeller Foundation, he was a, a Baptist. And originally he was, he set up the Rockefeller Foundation as a Baptist charity to fund Uh, Baptist missionary work in China, among other things. But then when his son, John D. Rockefeller Jr., took over, he switched the whole emphasis of the foundation to upholding uh, the views of the mainstream scientific community, including their ideas about human evolution, humans evolving from apes. So, they were very much involved in funding this kind of research. And one of the reasons they were interested in doing that, according to uh, officials of the Rockefeller Foundation, like Max Mason, who was uh, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, the reason they were in funding this kind of research was... Uh, the goal of uh, establishing beneficial control over human society. Mm. So we kind of have to ask, controlled by whom? And, you know, for 
what purpose. Yeah, so, that's, yeah. when I saw Rockefeller there, I thought, nah, this is nefarious. <laughs> like, <laughs> this isn't for good old-fashioned research. Like, there's something behind it with that kind of money. Well, they, I mean, actually, Warren Weaver, who was a, a Rockefeller Foundation official at the time, he said, in an ideal world, you know, you would do this kind of research without any thought of money. And yeah. Says, but, you know, it's just a fact of the world that money does influence how things are done. And if you have money and the ability to control uh, research, you can dictate it, its purposes. So, yeah, so that that kind of, that episode, you know, the Beijing man research of uh, Davidson Black in China yeah. is a good example of, uh, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation in, in this instance using its influence to control the direction of scientific research. Which is, to me, it's it's very disappointing because I've said this years ago when I like to think I became somewhat enlightened about things and started to understand that not everybody's telling me the truth. Not everything I hear is, is fact and things like that which is stressful hearing this, it, it makes, it's kind of even more, you know, more depressing about that. Cause it's like, okay, research itself. How do you even trust the results of research anymore? Cause they could easily be influenced by somebody with, with money. Well, simply, sure. Even simple back. Yeah. Even back in the 19th century and now in the 21st century, I'm sure that still goes on. <laughs> but, 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 yeah. I mean, what you just said right there, Amber, I mean, we could we could have a, a society built on a lot of uh, you know a lot of sand, frankly, like you know, not real research. It's research that is slanted to someone's benefit, and that's it. Well, one last question, Michael. Um, how much do you think we were just talking about when you mentioned mentioned uh, Baptist and stuff, and it just just kind of popped into my head real quick? How much do you think research into like ancient civilization, human origins, have been affected? by religious topics like uh, or influences like Christianity that may not certain churches might not want this information to be out because it, it changes their it, narrative. It, it ch- exactly it changes their narrative. Yeah. And that thought scares me that there's been a lot covered up or changed to protect and preserve this idea that is just a belief out there. Yeah. Um well one thing to consider is that we all engage in some kind of knowledge filtration in in the sense that we don't necessarily believe everything that we hear, you know, from any source. You know, we, we all do it. But my point in, in uh, looking at how this plays out in the scientific world is that uh, whatever standard we have, you know, for evaluating evidence should be applied equally, you know? Yeah. And, you know, just like a, you know, like a policeman, for example, 
you know, he's got a, a whole list of laws and rules and regulations. And, you know, maybe for somebody he likes, you know, he's very lenient. Oh, yeah, fine, thank you, just go ahead. And then for somebody he doesn't like, you know, does the same thing, and he applies the rules or laws very strictly, you know, that's just not fair. You know, whatever standard one is applying, it should apply equally to everybody or everything. It's it's an an objective platform that you study on and you do research on with with, with zero influence whatsoever or in zero prejudice, too. That, you know, that that's the other thing with that also, I think. So, yeah, I mean. Yeah, it, it so is... there are different fields like, you know, there's, there's some very famous scientists who have conducted research into what some people would call the paranormal. Mm-hmm. You have done research in remote viewing or uh, different things related to consciousness and things like that. Uh, and and they're although they're following you know the scientific methodology in their research, it's just rejected, you know. Yeah. Or people who research extraterrestrial intelligence, or reincarnation, or different things like that, they're just excluded. Which isn't right. Yeah, you know, even though. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what I object to is, you know, artificially rejecting, you know, categories of evidence just because, uh, you have some different metaphysical assumptions about the nature of reality. You know, that's, that's a problem. One thing I've, I've been saying a lot is that I do, I'm starting to believe, and I've heard this from other people, that like the idea of what a ghost is could just be a force of nature that we don't understand. Yeah. Simply put. And I, th- I think we all agree that it's something that does need to be looked at more by more people. And consciousness. Yeah. And, and yeah. all of this. Yeah, and all this stuff. Yeah, totally. I'd like to add... For sure. your listeners, a special offer. Yeah, my latest published book is called My Science, My Religion. It's about, uh, it's a collection of 24 papers okay. I've presented on the topics that we've been discussing on this show. Yeah. Uh, I've presented them at mainstream scientific conferences. Mm-hmm. So anyone who gets, who orders a copy of that book from my website, mcremo.com, M-C-R-E-M-O.com, will get the opportunity, if they request it, to also receive a free copy of the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the ancient Sanskrit texts that have inspired my work. Ghostly Talk!